You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists, and for the last 10 years, we've been meeting here every week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, what a ride, man. What a ride. UFC 275 was perhaps the best event of the year thus far, maybe the best UFC event in recent memory. Holy shit, just a bunch of wild stuff happening on this card, emanating from, as Bruce Buffer was sure to remind us, the Singapore Indoor Arena in Singapore. (laughs) You know, I was sitting there watching the main event, and I felt like a goddamn CME soundboard because I just kept repeating, you fucking kidding me? Yeah. You fucking kidding me with this crazy ass fight? I don't know how many times I thought, well, that's it. It's over now. It's it, here we go. Let's pack it all up only to then let's say 40 to 70 seconds later, be just as convinced that it was over in the other direction. Yeah. That the other guy had it all wrapped up. And then just as I resigned myself to, I can't believe it, this crazy ass fight, and we're going to go to the scorecards, nope. Nope, turns out we're not. I mean, damn, I don't know if I have ever just lived through the emotional ups and downs the way I did on Saturday night for this fight. I agree with you, man. Yuri Prohaska and Glover Tashira rightfully sharing fight of the fight of the night honors. Yuri Prohaska emerges as your new 205-pound champion. We we all lived a thousand lives during this fight. Uh the the fighters showed their strengths, they showed their weaknesses. And here you got Yuri Prohaska shaping up now as a uh, potentially kind of fun light heavyweight champion moving forward. And of course, Valentina Shevchenko escapes with the women's flyweight title uh, with her win over Tyla Santos. Split decision there, not necessarily what any of us were expecting. And of course, Joanna Yajacek calls it a career after her loss to Zhang Wiley. We will be talking about all that stuff. And then some, you know what? It feels invigorating, frankly, to sit here on a Monday and talk about some fights that were amazing and surprising, and also that leave us with uh, some extenuating storylines to follow here. Yeah, I mean, it it does definitely give us a lot to talk about. I also feel like, like I feel like I aged over the course of that fighting event. You know, like for one thing, I go from seeing Jake Matthews show up. Jake Matthews, who in my mind is still like nineteen years old. You know, yeah, like just the the symbol of youth in the UFC show up now. He's a grown ass man, dog. Jace Matthews is a grown ass man. Got grown ass man strength. Got some maturity and poise inside the cage. And when he knocks your ass out, is just going to shrug on you like I've been here before. It's not a big deal. I'm an experienced savvy vet at this point. And that kind of drove some shit home for me where I was like, oh, shit, if Jake Matthews it feels like he's been in this shit a while. I've really been in it a while, you know? Yeah. And then then when I have to, I, I see a peer like Glover Teixeira really 
just showing out for the middle-aged men out there and coming so damn close to to winning that as an underdog, retaining his title against the young buck. And man, you just... Yuri Prohaska via submission in the fifth round is uh, not up there on the list of possible endings I would have even considered. Take the ball and hand it to the referee. That's what Jake Matthews does when he scores a touchdown. It's not his first time. Yeah, the Yuri Prohaska uh, submission late round, not not necessarily on anyone's bingo card, as far as I knew. But we will talk about all that stuff coming up later. Remember, you're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast proper. Don't go out. Don't forget to go out and follow us on Instagram at CME if you nasty or like us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash co-main event. This show drops for free every Monday afternoon in your timelines or podcast libraries. And if you think we're having fun right now, you absolutely need to check out what's going on over at Patreon.com slash co-main event. Ben folks and I over there with three additional podcasts every single week. You can check us out on Wednesday with the live chat. Hashtag wild on Wednesdays. A, sp- a, a full additional hour of questions straight from the beloved patrons of the CME. We've also got the Friday Power Hour podcast, an additional hour of curated MMA talk, uh, which features the dreaded but amazingly named co-main event podcast, Patreon Power Hour Power Rankings. And of course, on Thursday, doing the damn thing, the the day that we do it for all the true heads out there, we talk about all the non-MMA-related stuff going on out there in the world. That's for the top-tier patrons. Check us out, co-main event, patreon.com slash co-main event. Uh, we're there all week, man. We got a patronage tier for every budget. We would invite you to join the team. We got music this week from Stockholm-based producer CMEO, a.k.a. co-main event podcast listener Alfred Larson. If you like what you hear from him on the show, you can check out more over at soundcloud.com slash That's S-E-E-M-I-O in CMEO. Three rounds, as usual, this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, Yuri Prohaska and Glover Tashira wrote a damn Russian novel out there on Saturday. It was just an epic poem, like a whole damn limited series in 25 minutes. At this point, we're all just characters in the Yuri Prohaska Glover Tashira cinematic universe. Give me six seasons and a movie of that shit, and I will binge it every night for the rest of my life. And in round number two, you know, we kept saying last week that someday one of these huge underdogs was going to shock the world, and it turned out that underdog was almost Tyler Santos. Could it still be? Was it already? And in round number three, toll the bell for Joanna, former champion. After a smart and painful performance from Zhang Wiley, there's a potential whole new world out there at straw weight. All that, plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. This week's listener mail is once again brought to you by Fulton and Rourke friends of the show brothers at arms really uh i was just at the gym right before we recorded this i got back 15 minutes before we were supposed to start recording the cme this week jumped in the shower fulton and work body wash fulton and work shampoo fulton and work face wash got out toweled off fulton and work deodorant fulton and work moisturizing oil up in the in the hair and now i'm sitting here fresh as a daisy 
feeling like a million bucks, people be looking at the live stream and be like, is that Chris O'Donnell right there? Yeah, see, I was just going to comment on the complete lack of flyaways in your yeah. hair. It's Did like Keanu Reeves wander in here for this recording of just the CME? The, my man's is glowing. Who's over this there. movie star showed up to record this thing opposite Ben Folks? Tons of cool stuff going on over at Fulton and Rourke. If you want to check it out for yourself, CME listeners can save 15% on their first purchase with the coupon code if you nasty. That's all one word. If you nasty. Fultonandrourke.com. That's the place to go to check it all out. Fultonandrourke.com. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Barnaby Thomas Gerard Joyce. Ah, so a uh, former deputy prime minister of Australia. Starts out, g'day boys. There it is. Outside of the top few fights, which deserve the majority of airtime, I was curious of your thoughts on a couple of my fellow Aussie countrymen's great performances, that being Jake Matthews, seemingly living up to the potential we had all placed on him years ago, but never he never really reached, and the future of one, Jack Della Maddalena, a.k.a. Flatnose Jackie, which, hey, couldn't be more into it. Flatnose yeah. Jackie. I love it. Uh, you know, he seems like a guy that UFC wants to do something with. He seems like a guy that they have looked at and they thought this this kid's got it. He's got it. Let's give him some fights he can win and we'll see where this crazy flat-nosed Jackie train takes us. And I'm perfectly happy just being along for the ride, going out there, uh, getting the first-round TKO finish over Ramzan Emiv in the curtain jerker on the UFC 275 pay-per-view card. Again, we talked a little bit about Jake Matthews and his second-round KO, KO over Andre Fialo. Uh, so you can start anywhere you want. Talk about either of these two assy, assy lads. I wouldn't say assy lads because that would be that just different. Uh, I'm gonna get some emails. Gonna get yeah. some emails about that. Jack and um, Jake. Okay, I noticed that when we we're watching the broadcast because as soon as Flat Nose Jackie turns to the side, we see his profile. You go, "Yep, that's a professional fighter." He got that Dan Henderson look to yeah. him. Where his face Someone just looks... took a frying pan yes. and just slowly over time tapped him in the face a couple times a day. Just every day for like 15 years, someone just walked up to him, <laughs> tap, tap, tap with a frying pan. And then, Chad, I went and looked at my man's Tapology photo, his profile photo on Tapology.com. Have you looked at it? Well, I'm going to look at it now. You better look at it right now because it's like a glimpse into an origin story. For how you ended up that way. It's like, you know, you you watch Star okay. Wars and then you watch yeah. one of those series. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. And you see like, okay, this is this explains how we got here. Yep. Uh, because it seems like this picture comes from a fight that he, like a title fight and some regional organization that he won because his hand is being raised and he's got a giant ass belt, frankly, around his waist. And yet his nose is taking an unauthorized turn. Yeah. Yeah. So no, you're right. This is like your your son runs into the room and sees Jack Della Madalena and is like, "How did his face get like that?" And you say, "Go look at the topology, my son." Yeah, find the but, find the uh, the origin of flat nosed Jackie. But you know what? I was really impressed with like his his ability to get out of some tough spots that frankly looks like maybe it was going the other way there for a second or two. Uh, he, Cause he's looking good on the feet, but then once he ends up in a grappling exchange, uh, Ramazan Namiv was very opportunistic, just snatching up whatever was there and looking for those chokes. And I was like, man, he's, he looks like he might 
be a couple minutes from going to, or a couple seconds from going to sleep here and stayed calm, got himself right out of it, and then lands that body shot. I was curious though on that one, not to get off the topic of talking about how these two dudes were both had awesome performances, but Ramazan Mamiv comes into that fight with a glowing red rectangle on his body. And that to me, I mean, I know there's a lot of speculation at first where they're like, what is he sunburned? Did he just get like, did he, you know, you fall asleep with one little section of the window coming right in at you? Uh, or was it, you're trying to use a heating pad or something like that at the last minute, something though would, that would make you think maybe I should uh, go ahead and hit this guy in the body and see what happens. And sure enough, he, he hits him left hand to the, to the body and Amiv doubles up there. Do we get a story on what was going on there with Ramazan Amiv? I, I don't know. I don't know what it was. Like, it's too bad that his tapology photo doesn't give us any clues. Like, his <laughs> tapology photo could be him trying to iron his shirt with it on. <laughs> well, okay, that would explain some things. Yeah, no, his tapology photo just seems to be uh, standard. I'm going to say it's an M1 event, and I think I can see about, th- like, a little bit of half of uh, Vadim Finkelstein's face there in the background as Amiv's doing the fist up photos at, at a weigh-in. But yeah, I mean, so that that's a good win there for Flat Nose Jackie. He looks good in that. But I was really impressed with Jake Matthews just all the way around because, you know, he looked like the version of Jake Matthews that we used to think could we were eventually going to get to. Yeah. And... Kind of unfairly, especially when somebody gets in super young in this sport and we start paying attention to him from an early age. And, you know, we see him win a few, lose one, win a few, lose one, that kind of thing. And people go, oh, okay, so he's a guy who's kind of around, but, you know, he's he's taken three steps forward, one step back. And we forget that there's still a lot of room for growth there. Like, he still has a, a, a long road that he can walk. And... You know, sometimes we see people burn themselves out too quickly doing that. Sometimes we see people, you know, just they take the wrong fights too early and they never quite get there. But you see him in this one and damn, he looked good. Yeah. Like just look sharp and fast and accurate and just calm. Even in some of these like blistering exchanges with Andre Fialo. Would you believe 16 fights in the UFC at this point for Jake Matthews, who has been an octagon regular since 2014, Ben? I mean, that's kind of crazy. Because, I mean, especially that's got, if he's got 16 fights in the UFC, that's got to be like what, close to three times as many as he had when he got in the UFC. Yeah, he you came know? into like, the UFC 7-0, and all of his fights having taken place in Australia. And then he starts out with a couple of wins, but then it gets a little rocky for him for a few years. At this point, though, regu- relatively regularly faced Jake, uh, is seven two seven and two in his last nine fights. He got the loss to Sean Brady at UFC two fifty nine, which at this point doesn't seem anything to really cry about. Sean Brady seems very good at fighting, and then he got caught with a third round anaconda choke by Anthony Rocco Martin back in December of two thousand eighteen. And those are his only two losses during this run that started in two thousand seventeen. He's got a win over Li Jingliang. He's got uh, Diego Sanchez on there. Remember uh, Emil Meek? Remember that guy? He's, yeah, he's on there. So. It, you know, to, about to turn 28 later this summer, Jake Matthews, it is very possible that he's hitting his stride. He's basically in his athletic prime right now. And you want to know how you go out there, get yourself into some tough spots or some a firefight 
and you still you're still looking like you got no cares in the world. It's because he's got 16 fights in the UFC. He's basically been fighting in the UFC since he was a child, and yeah. that's how you do it. That's how you get used to it, I guess. Yep, that'll do it. Next question this week comes to us from Patrick Milder, who writes as a Filipino. I don't often see representation in sports with an American audience. When they announced Joshua Kuya. Kulibau, a rush of excitement ran through me to hear a Tagalog word announced on the broadcast. I quickly went to my betting app to throw some money on my new guy, just wondering if I could get a shout out for this underdog pulling off an upset. Now, uh, Google tells me that Kuya is a noun that could mean an elder brother or a polite title or form of address for an older man. Yeah, big brother. Uh, he he walks out of this thing with the split decision win over Song Wu Choi. Uh, this is in the the I guess the featured prelim you would say another one of these guys, twenty eight years old. Uh, this is his second win in a row in the UFC. Started off with a loss to Jalen Turner, and then uh, Charles Jordan fought to a split draw. Since then, he has got these two straight wins. So we still, in some ways, don't know entirely what we're dealing with with a guy. Uh, now trying to make his way in the very very crowded featherweight division but uh you know it's better to win the fights and lose them now he's got two in a row so there you go sure as hell is this this is one of those that on paper this goes down as a split decision but uh, i mean that 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 ought to be a unanimous one there i think it's uh, that was pretty clear next question this week comes to us from eagle scala grimson okay he writes, you just knew Bruce Buffer would pull out all the stops when the UFC money train pulled up in the Far East, immaculately tanned and sporting a beautiful red silk blazer with oriental pattern stitching. But when uh, the main event rolled around, I was reminded of a thought I have had for a while now. During the more animated moments of Bruce's iconic introduction, the camera never stays with Bruce, even when he does the impressive it's time jump. Okay, the impressive it's time jump. Uh... The camera always cuts to the widest possible camera angle of the arena. This has been going on for years, maybe forever. So my question is, is the UFC ashamed of Bruce Buffer? Or is this just another symptom of the UFC disliking anyone having a personal brand or identity? Uh, I'm going to come out and say neither. Well, first of all... uh, I think they go to the wide shot of the arena when Bruce Buffer does the Buffer turn, whatever it's called, because they want to show you... The excitement. They want to show you the big picture story of all these people crammed into this arena watching this fight is about to go down. And uh, I would just remind everyone, Bruce Buffer, not the story here. There's never been an instance in the UFC. There's never been a fight where Bruce Buffer was the story. So the fact that they're not showing him on camera while he's doing his stuff is uh, it's self-explanatory. Is it not like we're showing the fighters? We're showing the crowd. We're showing the, the stuff that that matters. Bruce Buffer, damn lucky to have the the this seemingly endless UFC career up to this point to begin with. I'm not sure we should be, you know, shedding any tears for the guy. It seems like he's had quite a career for uh, for a very limited skill set. Well, first of all, it's good to hear from Eagle Scala Grimson, a Viking Age war poet, sorcerer, berserker, and farmer who is known mainly as the anti-hero of Eagle Saga. Um, I, when I saw this question, I thought, don't you think that a lot of the stuff that Bruce Buffer does, sort of the, the gyrations and the, the histrionics of his introductions, don't you think that's mainly for Bruce Buffer? Like, I, 
maybe that's what he needs to do to sort of get in the the voice space, get in character as Bruce Buffer and produce that. But a lot of the stuff, like the the outfits that he'll go through, uh, the a lot of the jumping up and down, yelling. Even when every once in a while, when he holds out his cards, and you can see that there's a lot of like writing and highlighting and everything on the card, and it's like, what could that be? What could that possibly be for? Because, bro, you're just reading off the records and the, where they're from. I mean, I get it if you wanted to, like, make sure you get up and, like, write down a pronunciation or something. But there's a lot of stuff on there where you're like, I think this is for you. This is because maybe there's not a whole lot to the job of ring announcer. And you want to feel like you're you're putting in the work or that you're you're really fully prepared. And so you do a lot of this stuff. And that's fine. But you're right that... From a TV production standpoint, it's not exactly surprising that we don't have the camera fixed on Bruce Buffer. Like that he he when he gets in the shot beyond the very beginning of like him standing there in the center of the cage holding the microphone to begin the process of announcing, it's usually because we are zeroed in on one of the fighters and Bruce has just walked up close to him and they the fighters seem to love it, man. They love that part. They love getting the fist bump from Bruce Buffer. I love sometimes they just get like eyeball to eyeball with Bruce Buffer as he's doing the uh the introduction. But I think a lot of that is for Bruce, part of Bruce's process, if you will. And it's not like it's absolutely, because we've seen people, do, we, we've seen, I know you're a Joe Martinez guy. Through we've through. seen people, you could show up in a fucking rented tux from Men's Warehouse and just do this shit without a lot of that. And it's not like the experience changes all that much. Like people who were not initiated in the the ways of the UFC wouldn't come away and being like, what the fuck? Why didn't that ring announcer give us more? You know, he didn't. He just kind of stood there and said the stuff. He didn't, he didn't jump up and down or, or uh, contort his face into any crazy thing at all. Like I, I want my money back. Like no one's saying that. Yeah. You know, I know that there are some Bruce Buffer stands out there on the internet because I've oh, seen yeah. him. I've seen him before. But if the question is, is the UFC ashamed of Bruce Buffer? I think the obvious answer is no, uh, because he's still there. Yeah. He's still out there doing it like at, at, at most of the events, including all of the big events where he can be there. And like, I assume you could get a different ring announcer, probably for less money than whatever you're playing Bruce Buffer. Uh, you could get a better ring announcer for sure. Uh, you could get a guy who doesn't bring as much attention to himself, you know, prior to the bell for sure. And I think this is one of those things where it's like, if Dana White likes something, he's never changing it. He is yeah. never going to change it. He rolls out of his backstage locker room where he is listening to System of a Down or Stained or whatever. And he's still wearing the same jeans he was wearing 12 years ago. And he walks out in the arena where everything still works exactly the same as it did 20 years ago. And he got the same ring announcer, the same camera work. It's just, he, if he likes it, if Dana White likes you as the ring announcer, you're there for life. Well, and a bunch of UFC fans like him too, you know, and then he he's, at this point, he's kind of like a mascot. Like people enjoy seeing, like, hey, this Bruce Buffer's there. What kind of crazy ass jacket Bruce Buffer going to be wearing? What kind of, like, is it, are we going magic eye as far as a design for the jacket this week? Or are we going grandma's curtains, you know, uh, are, are we going like, the, the carpet in a vampire bordello. You know, let's see. You know it's kind of a big event when Bruce Buffer shows up with a crazy-ass tuxedo. You know it's a fight night when we just have Joe Martinez being quietly a professional. Yeah. 
Next question this week comes to us from Billy O'Connell, who writes, If you pull up to Poppy's Steakhouse right now and see a reservation under the name D. White, just know Dana's <laughs> back at it again, trying to pull out all the stops to get Habib back in the UFC any way he can. So what are the odds we see Habib and Tony Ferguson on the 125th season of Tough? And is that enough for you guys to watch? Oh, I um, love a good use guys. Well, the short answer is no. It's not going to be enough to get me to watch The Ultimate Fighter, a show that I've already seen a, a million times. This is this seems like an idea now that I believe Tony Ferguson was the first one to float saying we should be tough coaches. And then Habib got on uh, Twitter and was like, I am interested, Tony. Please read this paid advertisement for Eagle FC. Uh, and now it's like we're talking about it like it's a real thing. I mean, I guess if they get both guys to do it, it's no skin off my back. They might as well. But I don't think you're going to get them to actually fight, which might, hey, man, it might be a relief to not have this expectation that the coaches who are on tough are going to fight each other. Maybe they're just there to uh, do the best they can for the the actual contestants. But at the same time, I don't, unless they throw a bunch of money at Habib and all he has to do is go to Vegas once a week to put in a, a showing at the tough filming, like, I don't know that this is a realistic thing that will actually happen. Um, okay, I did Google it, and Billy O'Connell happens to be, well, Wikipedia tells me that the real given name of Billy Eilish, singer Billy Eilish, is Billy Eilish Pirate Baird O'Connell, oh. which, are you fucking kidding me? I know it's not that time in the show yet, but that's there's a lot going on there. Anyway, uh, good to hear from her. The... Uh, one thing I wanted to note about this thing is that when Dana White was asked about it, about Khabib's and Tony saying that they would coach tough against each other, and as this question alludes to, Dana White's response was, hey, yeah, maybe I could talk Khabib into fighting again. And that's why it seemed to perk his interest, which I'm just going to point out. So we're still out here saying Henry Cejudo is retired, but Khabib, oh, the minute he even talks about being open to doing anything, we're going to talk about him trying to cajole him back into the life of a fighter. I see. I see what's going on. Um, but also, I would genuinely be more interested if the one of the things we did with Tough was take like retired UFC fighters and have them be the coaches and not build up some kind of shitty narrative about how they're going to fight each other at the end. But just, A, give some work to some retired coaches, and B... That's who might actually be interested in seriously coaching rather than showing up and being like, I brought my coaches. They're going to coach you guys. I'm going to, you know, break a door or something every once in a while and talk some shit to the other guy. Their focus is just typically not on the coaching aspect as much as their own career because that's the headspace they're in. And that, that makes sense. But if you brought in retired UFC fighters, especially ones who actually are interested in, in coaching they might have some shit to impart upon the people on Tough, and it would be interesting to see who's a good coach and who's not. You know, uh, I, you might be able to get me a little more interested in it that way. But if we're just using it as a vehicle to try to lure Habib back and and set up this cursed, cursed ass fight between Habib and Tony Ferguson, and that's one where when people were giving Dana White shit for claiming that he made every single fight he ever wanted to, except for Fedor versus Brock Lesnar, and people were had a lot of. Uh, a lot of notes on that comment. A lot of things to point out of fights that they recall. And people are saying, I saw being like, hey, you never made Habib versus Tony Ferguson. I was like, that's one you can't blame the UFC for. Because damn it, they tried. 
They tried so hard to book that one over and over again, and the MMA gods just repeatedly said, no, we will not allow it. You go ahead and you try to book them by roping them into a, a tough coaching gig, and the fucking earth is going to split open and swallow them both whole before they'll allow that to happen. Don't yeah. tempt fate on this one. Just rip a hole in the space-time continuum trying to make that fight. Uh, if I had known that that question was from Billie Eilish, I would have read it in a husky whisper. Because I guess that's what she does. Is I think it? we would all it's be interested to hear your husky whisper, whispers. I'm a bad guy. What do you think? Uh, it could be huskier, I think. <laughs> Now I'm just sitting here waiting for my record contract. Um, All right. That's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you got a question, comment, or concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. Got to get you in touch with us right now. We're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, we've been singing the praises of NordVPN for a while now on the show. People should know by now, NordVPN, among other things, the fastest VPN in the world. For my money, one of the most powerful VPNs in the world. Starting starting during the second half of June, uh, NordVPN will have three user plans to choose from. There's the standard plan, the plus plan, and now the complete plan over at NordVPN. You can hop on board and enjoy the leading VPN service and malware malware blocker, generate and store strong passwords, protect files in an encrypted cloud. If that sounds good to you, it should because NordVPN is awesome. Ben and I have been using it ourselves for the past few months. Ben, what's your favorite part of the NordVPN? Oh, you mean the, the encryption powerhouse that is NordVPN? Yeah, that's the one I'm talking about. I like that wherever I go, logging on to some Wi-Fis and whatnot, NordVPN's got me just right away. Don't even have to do anything. Just kicking right in and take care of me. You can grab your exclusive NordVPN deal by going to nordvpn.com slash co-main or use the code co-main to get a huge discount off your NordVPN plan plus one month of additional service for free and a bonus gift. It's completely risk-free with NordVPN's 30-day money-back guaranteed. That's nordvpn.com slash co-main or the code co-main. So Ben, like we were saying at the top of the show, Yuri Prohaska and Glover Tashira really go out there and just put on an epic crackerjack of a fight. Like I said, everyone showed their strengths. Everyone showed their weaknesses. And we emerged from the thing with Yuri Prohaska as the new light heavyweight champion We'll talk about perhaps the prospects for him coming up at the end of this round. But first, to start off, were you more happy for Yuri Prohaska to see him emerge with the belt here in somewhat jaw-dropping fashion to choke Glover Teixeira for, I believe, the first time in Glover Teixeira's professional MMA career near the end of the fifth round when it seemed like Glover was cruising to a win? Or were you more sad for the old man Glover Teixeira out there with his trunks Creeping up every time we see him, trunks getting a little bit higher on the torso. That's how you can tell he's getting old. He's aging the trunks, creeping up toward the chin. 
are you are you more sad that he got the rug kind of pulled out from under him there at the end? Can I say I'm conflicted? Yes. Because Yuri Prohaska won me over. I, I mean, not that I was against Yuri Prohaska, because we talked about leading up this fight week. You you heard a lot of interesting stuff about Yuri Prohaska. We really got to know intri- intricately the what's going on in the, the background and sometimes inside the mind of Yuri Prohaska, and it's delightfully weird. So, yeah, we were already interested in the guy. He showed a lot of heart and grit and toughness. And yet, I also, I really did want to see Glover win this. Just at his age, you know there's not going to be that many more, no matter how it goes. You want to see him be able to defend the title, because it felt like when he comes in as an underdog, that's kind of people going, okay, yeah, you got the belt, bro, but you're too old. And so you're not going to keep it long. This young buck is going to run through you. And so he goes out there doing the Glover stuff, left hooking his way out of some trouble at times, you know, showing off his grappling. And there was a part of me that really did want to see him come out of that with the belt. And yet, it, I can't be mad at Yuri Prohaska for, frankly, going through hell yeah. in that fight and finding a way to finish it at the end. Like, I don't know if he was aware of needing a finish there. That, uh, Especially the way that fifth round was going, it seemed pretty clear. Like, okay, Glover looks like he's headed to a decision win here. And of all the ways you think you might get Glover out of there in the final minute, desperation-wise, as a fight, who would think that it's going to be Yuri latching onto a choke there? Yeah. And it's just that part of it, like as, as tore up as I am for Glover and as it, it must hurt him a lot. I, I saw some comments where he was saying he felt like this, a loss like this one was hard to swallow and man, I could sure understand how it is. Yeah. And hey, but, uh, you can't be mad at, at Yuri Prohaska to go out yeah. there with his top knot haircut, come to the post fight interview in his silk kimono. Can't stay mad at that guy. There's just no way at the same time. I know for a fact that a 42-year-old man who walks out to Welcome to the Jungle and then goes out there and loves the shit out of an arm triangle choke, like that's that's basically a fighter made in a computer to appeal to Ben Folks. Like that's, that's my whole shit right that's there. Your whole shit. And so I know that you got to there's got to be a hole in your heart a little bit this week to see Glover go out that way. And like I said now a couple times, everybody showed their strengths and their weaknesses in this fight. And for Glover, you got to see a lot of them, right? You got to see the power punching. You got to see the dominant control on the ground when he can get you there. Just the sort of like meat and potatoes, uh, technical dominance on the ground, where when he gets on top of you, it is very, very hard to get out of there. And he's not going to make any mistakes. And he's going to pound you until you get in a position where he feels like he can put on one of his favorite submissions. And that's what he's going to do. We also saw, arguably, and you can't, I don't think you can bang on the guy too much for this, but some poor decision making, right? Or some in retrospect to things where the way the fight was going, maybe Glover would have been better off to just keep pounding on Yuri Prohaska. This happened several times, and not the least of which I think was in the the fifth fifth round, round, right? Yeah, Uh, Yeah. Where where instead of trying to finish the fight via strikes, when it seemed like Yuri was on his way out, Glover Tashira attempted to go for a submission. Uh, 
and that you know that it's I can see how this would be a hard loss for him to swallow. I think if he goes back and watches the tape, there will be some things that he wishes he had done differently. Yeah, I mean, you're right that there are at least two points in that fifth round where it looks like if Glover just keeps punching, he keeps the belt. He seemed close to putting Yuri away or at least getting a referee stoppage there because he's landing clean and they're clearly hurting him and he's got him up against the fence and it doesn't seem like it's uh, Yuri really has a way out there. And the first time he jumps on that guillotine and you're going, oh, oh, why? Glover, yeah. why? And then the second time he goes for a takedown and, and gets it but halts what was a really effective attack there when it seemed like Yuri didn't have a whole lot left and then that gets them into the ground exchange where Yuri snatches the choke. And I I understand that it's real easy for all of us on the other side of the fence, the other side of that cage, to sit there and be like, oh no, that's poor fight IQ. You shouldn't have done that, Glover. When you're over 20 minutes in to an absolutely exhausting fight yeah. in which you have been blasted in the head several times with several hard shots, and maybe your decision-making is more instinct than it is carefully thought out game plan at that point. And for Glover, perhaps it's not surprising that the autopilot in him says, grab the neck when you see it and try to submit the guy rather than just keep punching, especially in a fight that, you know, you came into knowing you probably needed to get it to the ground. So I'm sure you, you put in all that work in training camp, not to mention the entirety of the guy's career. And in some of those moments, your body is just doing what it does. And afterwards, you look back and be like, maybe I could have just punched my way to a win there. Um, But it's one of the thoughts I had while watching this and then afterwards was uh, obviously we're going to end up talking about this one in the conversation for is was this the greatest light heavyweight title fight ever? Yeah. And the main one that it's up against there has got to be the first John Jones, Alexander Gustafson fight. And so then, you know, right there, you're reminded of the specter of John Jones, having given up the belt, gone up at least theoretically to heavyweight. And we've been dealing sort of with that, a situation in the aftermath of that, where everybody is sort of looking at each title fight and being like, but would John Jones just smoke both these guys? And here, because of some of the decision-making on both sides, really, uh, especially Yuri Prohaska has that ability sometimes where he looks like one of those inflatable guys outside the car wash, you know, just sort of arms flinging up in the air. And then the next minute, he's just nailing you square in the face with an extremely accurate punch. And you go like, okay, the guy, he, he, he leaves some holes too, but he's also a dangerous guy. But you, maybe John Jones comes in and beats both those guys right now. But also, this feels a lot more fun yeah. than what we got used to in John Jones's title reign. So maybe I don't give a fuck. Yeah. Uh, whether or not it was the greatest light heavyweight title fight of all time, we might have to wait a little bit and see. I think just as a fight, it was probably better than uh, the John Jones, Alexander Gustafson fight, because I can't recall a a light heavyweight title fight or a, or a big man title fight that had this many kind of back and forth moments and moments where, uh, it, like you said, it seemed like one guy was on the verge of winning and then, 40 seconds later, it seems like the other guy's on the verge of winning. Like, this was a special fight in that regard, I thought. But how we regard it historically might have a lot to do with what happens to both of these guys in the light heavyweight division. If Yuri Prohaska is able to go on and have uh, a nice title reign, like maybe then we start to look at this as a as a an all-timer kind of Hall of Fame, whatever fight wing kind of selection for the, for the UFC Hall of Fame. If Glover is able to stick around long enough to maybe battle back, get a rematch, uh, win the win the belt again, like obviously, then that 
makes things a, a bigger deal. Uh, and I, here's the thing. I'm not, I, I refuse. I refuse to sit here and pine for John Jones. I won't do it. I'm not going to do it. He said he's going up to heavyweight. He's looking large and in charge every time we see him. I have no reason to disbelieve that that's what he's doing. I don't even know if he could get back to 205 now if he wanted to, not for a while. And uh, I, I'm just going to play the field that we've got, man. And it's right now it's it's pretty fun. And one of the things that I think makes it fun is that Yuri Prohaska, now your champion, goes out there, shows his strengths, looking huge, by the way. They show this is one of those ones where they show the stare down of these two guys before they start the fight, and they look like they're in different weight classes. And Glover Tashira is not a small dude. Yuri Prohaska is a damn giant out there. Uh, he walked out to the to a song saying, "This is how legends are made," which is a little, maybe a little bit too on the nose for me, but I understand he's got a uh, he's got a whole thing he's working on there. Uh, looked as you said, accurate with the strikes, unorthodox, fun guy to watch. Worried about the takedown defense. I got to say, worried about some of the uh, the holes in the stand-up. Glover Teixeira was able to hurt him on the feet. And Glover Teixeira is one of the better scouted punchers in this in this weight class. Uh, still very good, very technically solid. Obviously, he's the champion, so it's hard to go out there and fight him. But, whew, Yuri Prohaska, I'm excited to see what happens. But I'm also a little bit concerned about some of the some of the stuff we saw out there. Here's the question. If you're the UFC, what do you do now? Because you have Yuri Prohaska, he's he's getting into a fracas with Jan Blahovich as he walks back toward the locker room. Blahovich has already talked about, hey man, you put me and Yuri Prohaska out there in a stadium in Eastern Europe, in Poland, wherever, and you put 60,000 people in the stands. And if the UFC was still into doing the fucking good shit, I think that's probably what they would do. <laughs> In this current landscape, I have no fucking idea if that's a thing they might do. Do you do that? Do you have a, an automatic rematch, which I think you can uh, make a case for with Glover Tashira? Do you do the uh, something different? You got this, what's Anthony Smith, right? Coming up there. He's got a, uh, he's got a fight, I believe. Uh, oh, he's fighting uh, Ankalev, right? Yeah, I so think you could, so. The winner of that could make a good case for, for number one contender. What do you do? with Yuri Prohaska now that you have the modern-day samurai ensconced with the belt at 205? Well, if you are going to do the Jan Blahovich fight, then you need... you Don't do that one in San Antonio. You know? Don't do not do that one uh, at T-Mobile Arena in Vegas, even. Like, that is the one. That, let's, let's go and do a big show over in Europe somewhere. Otherwise, you, it just feels like a wasted opportunity. Um, but if you also told me that we're going to turn right around and book Yuri versus Glover too, I mean, how could I not watch it? How could I not get excited after seeing this? And yet, it does seem like you're trying to make lightning strike twice a little bit there by turning around and booking that one. Uh, especially because, what do you do there if Glover wins that one? Do you then have to turn around and do it a third time? Like yeah. we we've seen how that goes. We've we've done that at heavyweight uh, fairly recently, and here you don't even have the argument that the champion had held the belt for a really long time. It's Glover's first title defense, so I think there's an argument to be made for going ahead and doing something new. And then if Glover is going to stick around and keep fighting, maybe he wins one, and then if if Yuri's still the champ, we run it back then. Like yeah. that's not a terrible idea to me. As weird as it sounds to say about 42-year-old Glover Tashira, it seems like that fight would keep a little while if he is planning to soldier on. If it was me, 
I think you got to strike while the iron's hot and do Yuri Prohaska against Jan Blahovich and see if you can get it in a big stadium somewhere in, in Eastern Europe. We'll see. We'll see if that's what comes to fruition. But your new champion, Yuri Prohaska, fun times at light heavyweight, regardless of uh, the the uh, status of John Jones, I think. so. I swear right. to God, if they make Yuri Prohaska versus Jan Blahovich and we're doing it at the Toyota Center in Houston just for the sake of the site fees, I'm going to lose my goddamn mind. Doing it at the Fucking... Apex, brother. No, no, we are not. Stadium <laughs> show. God damn it. Uh, this is an incredible fight. If you watched this one and, and, and you didn't like it, sports probably not for you. Uh, yeah. this, this was a good one for, for, for many reasons, but a, a hell of a back and forth contest and you got your new champion. So there you go. It was. And, and the thing is, it's a, it was a back and forth, uh, a, a damn mess really. And yet I know Yuri was uh, disappointed with that afterwards, but that wasn't that part of the fun. Wasn't that one of the things that made it so amazing? I, I mean, I should think it was, and that's the thing that helped me not miss John Jones so much. Is just like, okay, maybe this is not a, a slick technical masterpiece. It's not a chess match out there, but damned if I didn't have a good time. If anybody is sitting out there at home being like, oh, this fight wasn't technical enough for my taste, like, I don't know what to tell you, man. I, I, I do. can't help Fuck you. you. I can't Fuck help you. you. All right, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll move on to round number two. Uh, ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week? So I see Bare Knuckle FC out here on the Gramps posting a highlight where Alan Belcher lands this big right hand to drop Frank Tate at this most recent event. And Chad, when he lands the punch, all types of fucking liquids coming out of his mouth got. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what, like, what had happened here? Like a slow motion Rocky movie, right? It's like, I mean, I understand sometimes it's like, you know, that you get hit, the saliva goes flying, some sweat and everything flies out of there maybe. But this, it's like he was getting ready to do a spit take on fucking I Love Lucy or something. Like, did he, did this punch land immediately after we we he he took a big gulp of water in the corner and it didn't have a chance to swallow. Alan Belcher punched him in the face because it's I'd never seen anything like this. Yeah, it looked like Johnny Carson told a really funny joke on the Tonight Show forty years ago, and this guy did a spit take. Hey man, it's BKFC for all I know. He just chugged a beer and went out there. Still has part of it was still in his mouth. Maybe this happened in the in the beer round. Yes, uh, there's the traditional beer round over there in BKFC. Are you fucking kidding me? You fucking also, kidding me? It's just nasty. It's yeah. just straight up nasty. Yes, it is. Alan Belcher, by the way, thick. That's a thick. <laughs> that's a thick boy. Somebody, somebody locked Alan Belcher in a tuna fish uh, factory or something. Just, <laughs> just He's eating nothing good. but that lean protein. He's eating good in his new life as a bare knuckle boxer. Yeah. Well, Ben, uh, speaking of boxing shit, did you see this guy haul off and bite the other guy in the neck? During this boxing fight, your guy Edgar Berlonga. They're trying to build him up, trying to make him into a contender. He is out there against 39-year-old two-time title challenger Romer Alexis Angulo. And he's not having a great time with it. He ends up beating him by 10-round decision, but at the same time, he didn't put him away in the fashion that you might want to if you're trying to establish yourself as an up-and-coming contender. And at one point, gets so frustrated... Goes Dracula on this motherfucker. Some vampire shit. Bites him right in his neck. You fucking kidding me? 
It was a, a blade movie broke out out there during this boxing match. And then afterwards, he's like, I don't know. He was throwing elbows. So I just wanted to remind him to follow the rules. So I was going to bite him a little bit. Are you fucking kidding me? Come on. Fucking kidding me? I mean, I got an idea. Throw an elbow back. If that's what you feel like was going on, I think uh, I think biting uh, pretty frowned upon. Just culture-wide, you know? Not yeah. even not even talking about within the bounds of sport here. Just like there's a limited number of scenarios in which you won't get in trouble for hauling off and biting somebody. Yeah, and that scenario is the Lost Boys. Not during a boxing fight. Fucking Nosferatu out here. That is gonna do it for round number one. We'll be right back. Round number two. Chad, I'm just going to say it. Tyla Santos would have won if she hadn't lost. Okay. All right. You can't tell me you're not sitting there watching this fight round or two in and thinking, oh, Chevy Shanks not looking nearly so dominant as we're used to. Especially when we get in some wrestling exchanges or we get in the clinch, she's kind of getting muscled around a little bit. Now, granted, Valentina Shevchenko is a seasoned goddamn pro. And it really came to her aid here because she didn't freak out. She got in some bad situations early on, didn't get down on herself. She's trying to make the best of it, in fact. She's going to land, by my estimation, 40 to 50 punches while somebody is on her back with a body triangle locked in. So she's still out there looking to do that work all the way through. She's a tough person to beat. But it also seems like she looked way more mortal than we're used to and got a big assist from an accidental clash of heads that hurt Tyler Santos way more than it hurt her. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's sort of the, where this thing turned around, I guess you could say, if if indeed it did. I know some people uh, had it 49-46 for, for Shevchenko, went ahead and gave her all of the rounds except the first one. Uh, that seems like a stretch to me, but but people are out here, uh, you know, scoring things in their own their own view. And it was really, I believe she said, didn't she say later, like she suffered a broken orbital, like uh, a clash of heads, face side of her face swelled up in the fashion that it would if you had a broken bone in there. And that's kind of where this thing came apart, because then Valentina Shevchenko goes out there and, and pretty obviously wins the fourth and fifth rounds and walks away with the split decision here. Uh, the second round to me was super interesting of this thing because Santos, you know, did a did some nice work, got a late takedown, got a reversal, seemed to be doing some damage. Shevchenko threatened for a second with a go-go plata, uh, but didn't seem to do much with it. And, you know, when I guess if you're going to have close fights, you know, that that could go either way. But even with the new criteria and all the discussions that we've had around the new criteria recently, sometimes I'm still watching these fights being like, I have no idea how you're supposed to score that or who, who should win that. And I think that you're always going to have close rounds like that. Uh, we had also, in the first round, talked about Glover Tashira and Yuri Prohaska showing strengths and weaknesses, and we talked a little bit about Glover Tashira's decision-making. It fully takes Valentina Shevchenko 10 or 15 minutes in this fight for her to realize that maybe she should not initiate a takedown 
Yeah. When that seemed like it was her game plan coming in. I know she's got very well-rounded skills and she likes to use them all, but it just seemed like punch your way in, get a takedown was maybe what she wanted to do here. And oh, turned out that was not the right thing to do here because uh, Tyler Santos was making her pay every time she tried to do that. And it, it still took her a long time to adjust. So uh, I think you run this one back, man. I honestly do. I think you kind of got to with the clash of heads and, and Santos coming in here as like a six to one underdog and does much better than we thought she was going to do. And it's not like there was a bunch of new business, right? Yeah. Beating down Valentina Shevchenko's door. So like run this one back. Let me see this one again. Let me see this one again. When someone doesn't have a broken bone in their face from an accidental clash of heads. And we'll see how this goes. You know, I got to say Valentina Shevchenko had a lot more confidence that the judges would see it her way than I might have just knowing what we know about MMA judging. Because especially the way she approached that fifth round where I was thinking she might very well need a finish here. And she seemed to be thinking, I just need to win this fifth round. Let me see if I can get get Santos on her back and keep her there. And then I'll have it all sewn up. And I was especially thinking... And once you got her down to one eye, that's the time to go after her striking-wise. And you could see she was having a lot more success there. Uh, she was attacking on that side and relying on Santos struggling to see it. And it was working for the most part. And you just felt like, okay, if you just turn up that volume a little bit, then maybe even get her out of here and maybe you absolutely need to. And she didn't seem to think so, which, I mean, she ended up being right. But, man, we've seen people... Uh, guess wrong on that one before uh especially with some of those rounds being so difficult to score uh i i did think though a lot that i i was reminded of that quote from demetrius johnson where he was talking about uh, his most memorable fights and one of the ones he was saying uh one of his title defenses where he went in sick basically like made himself sick during his weight cut nothing went right there felt awful standing there in the corner beforehand thinking, I just don't want to be here tonight. And then had to gut it out and win a five-round title fight. And how that's the sort of stuff that it takes to be a long-reigning champion in the UFC. Because eventually you're going to show up and it's kind of not going to be your night. Or you're just not going to feel as great as you do. Or you're going to show up and the other person has an answer for your game plan and whatever you're going to have to try to adjust halfway through. And here's where it came in really handy for her to be as experienced as she is and as confident as she is to stay poised in that kind of a situation and and find a way to get it done. Because yeah. that's a lot harder than I think people realize. Uh, to, to go out there and maybe just not have it click like it all usually does. Have a couple tough rounds and, and find a way to win it. And that's, the I think, a lot of the advantage that comes with her experience in some of these big fights. Whereas for Tyler Santos, this is by far the biggest fight you've ever been in. First time you've ever been in a situation, anything like this. And they're over there in her corner kind of freaking out, yelling, this is why we got two eyes. Don't worry, we're, we're going to do it. Uh, and for Valentina Shevchenko, it's more of a, another night at work and she knows how to handle it. Yeah, some very intense corner work from the Tyler Santos crew over there very intense uh you're right about the fact that i think we as mere mortals can't possibly appreciate how hard it is not to just even become a champion in this sport but to stay champion for such a long time even the people who win the gold 
generally have fairly transient experiences here. It is hard to be a UFC champion for a long period of time. George St. Pierre would refer to it as walking on the razor blade, right? Walking the razor's edge. And every night that you go to work, you get the other person's best performance and you're constantly fighting the rest of the best competition that the UFC matchmakers can go out there and find for you. And it doesn't take that big of a slip up to show up having not taken the person as seriously as you should having not trained, you know, maybe just like a 5% dip in training. And sometimes that's enough, but you're right that Valentina Shevchenko is one of these people who can have an off night and things don't go right for her and plan a, and maybe plan B don't work. And she still has enough experience and enough left in the tank to shift gears and uh, still get the win. She has not lost since 2017 in the ba- in the bantamweight championship fight against Amanda Nunes. She won the women's flyweight title against Joanna Jajic at UFC 231 in December of 2018 and has run off seven straight successful title defenses since then. You could argue a little bit about the depth of the division, but at the same time, she's up there. She's getting into Anderson Silva numbers, man. Like she's she's going to be up there considered among the greatest who have ever done it. And I maybe sometimes you have a close call. Maybe that's just the the, the nature of the beast that sometimes you're going to get into a fight that goes differently than you thought it was going to, and you still have to be able to marshal the troops and go out there and get a win. And she did that here. That said, give it to me again. I still want to see it again. Because we don't have nothing else we got planned for Valentina Shevchenko. So uh, she, I, w- I want her to come out here and prove it against a person who doesn't break their face in a, in a clash of heads. Yep. Yeah. All right. That is going to do it for round number two. We will be right back with round number three. Ben, we will be talking about the stoppage in the Zhang Wiley Joanna Yajic rematch for a while, I think. The spinning back fist KO by Zhang Wiley midway through the second round that knocks Joanna Yajic out so completely that she was still throwing punches as her body dropped to the canvas for an absolute face plant where she then laid for several seconds without moving uh this was just one of those holy shit moments man that you get in this sport the spinning back fist knockout by Zhang wiley definitely gonna be on the list of potential knockouts of the year for 2022 yeah this is what i mean first of all I don't want us just to focus on the end because it was a pretty strong performance all the way through yeah, by Zhang sure. Wiley here. And, and, but especially having the confidence in a fight like that to go for something like that and just absolutely nail it. And you could see, you know, Joanna took that one. It, it obviously hurt. She's still, the, the, the spirit is still willing. She's still trying to fire back. Because that's just what's in her to do. And her body is in mid-shutdown mode. And she lands just face first on the mat. And to me, it's a reminder how this this sport 
is cruel in a whole lot of ways. But one of them is that almost nobody gets any sort of happy ending. Yeah. And it it makes a lot of sense why you and I would think that this is the one that if you don't win this one, it puts you further away from a title shot. It, it, it puts you sort of in the middle of the pack. And in your mid-30s, if there's other things you want to do, like for her, she mentioned wanting to, to uh, have a family, then now would be the time to say, okay, the, the days of being at the top of the division and fighting for those big money fights may be over for me. Yeah. Uh, and yet, man, that's a, that's a heartbreaker of one to go out to, uh, to a rival who you had an absolutely amazing fight with the last time you were in there a couple years ago. Yeah, it's the, if it sticks... Let's say that. Let's make let's make the it's obligatory always if it sticks, yep. The obligatory qualifying statements. If it sticks, it is the very rare well timed retirement in mixed martial arts for Joanna Jacek to walk away when she still, I believe, is thirty four years old. Very popular in her native po- uh, Poland, very popular still, I think, with MMA fans, and the kind of person who seems like she could do different stuff in her life kind of seems like she could be successful in a number of different areas depending on what she wants to do uh so it was a sad end for her especially for a person who had worked her way up to fan favorite status uh over time in this division but at the same time you know by the time she had she had uh made the announcement and came to the post fight press conference it seemed a little bit like she had made peace with it man and so like i wish her the best at all that and i hope that she continues to be uh, successful and capable and, and uh, you know, keep doing the things that she likes. You mentioned the performance from Wiley Zhang, Zhang Wiley, that uh, that I wanted to talk about. This is an incredibly smart game plan from her, I thought. Just, like, watched the first fight, saw how things went in that one, and came in on the heels of back-to-back losses to Rose Namajunas in a fight that she desperately needed to win against Joanna Jacek. And it was almost like she and or her coaches sat back and thought, what is the one glaring advantage that I have in this matchup that we don't even need to talk about fighting? What is the one thing that I have going for me? And that is size, strength, and power against Joanna Jacek. Like, that's the, the area where you have a clear advantage. And uh, Jean Wiley went out there and used all that stuff, man. Like, took her down, used her size advantage, used her strength, just kind of poured it on her, did damage from the top, put Jacek in uncomfortable positions where she didn't want to be. And then uh, in the end, you get the highlight reel knockout to kind of tie a bow on top of it. Can't say enough, I don't think, about the execution and just like the smart game plan coming in to just have a different fight than you had the first time. And yeah, Jacek like, kind of had almost no answer for it. Yeah. I'll say this. If this fight truly was to determine who gets the next shot at the title, now that Carla Esparza has claimed the belt, if I'm Carla Esparza and I watch that fight, I'm taking a lot of pictures with the belt now. <laughs> I'm bringing it places. I'm trying to book some public appearances where I can leverage that champion stuff. I'm posting a lot of stuff to the gram, getting a lot of those pictures because you're not going to have that for long if you get in there with Zhang Weili. I mean, I, I I think that Carlos Barza has done a lot with the skills that she has. Uh, she's she's a good fighter, has had a good career and a, a longer, more successful career than I think a lot of people expected her to have. But that version of Zhang Weili straight up commits an assault on Carlos Barza. I would be shocked uh, if 
we're not sitting here by the end of the year, probably talking about Zhang Wiley as the champion. Well, they're definitely going to do it. There's no way, barring any kind of unforeseen setback, that they do anything else. They had already yeah. said even before this fight, oh, of course, it's the number one contender fight. And the UFC, uh, I think, sees those Zhang Wiley dollar signs in its eyes. And so that's definitely what we're going to get. And I agree. It's hard. To, it will be hard, I think, to think of a time in recent memory where a, a sitting champion, uh, or as John Anik said this weekend in a line that I liked, the incumbent. It's, <laughs> it's going to be hard to think of a time when you had an incumbent champion come into a fight where they were potentially as big an underdog as uh, Carla Esparza will be against Zhang Wiley. So we all have that to look forward to, I suppose. A ritualistic sacrifice of the current champion. Just take those pictures. You're going to want them. And yet, Zhang Wiley, very magnanimous. Like, not not talking any junk, just saying, like, hey, why don't we meet in Abu Dhabi? Like, that's a not... Neutral not, ground. It's not my place. It's not your place. Uh, we, we both could do some good business there. How about that? Just like a very sporting. Yeah. Sporting of Zhang Wiley. Yep. Who, frankly, has been that way at every turn in her UFC yeah. career, from what I recall. Yeah. All right, let's go ahead and we'll do just saying stuff and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, what's your just saying stuff this week? Well, Chad, you know how we're doing those crypto.com fan bonus of the night awards. How could I forget? You'll also recall that we here at the CME, we made it very clear that the thing you should do if you're a fighter and you win one of those crypto bonuses is as soon as they tell you you want it, immediately go over to some media member's laptop, ask to borrow it, and get to work converting it to cash. Yeah, sell. Sell, sell, sell. Sell right away. And that became pretty apparent with these particular crypto bonuses, because as you may have heard in the news, uh, that stuff is uh, it's down. It's down in a big way. Oh, Just, crypto is down? Yeah. The yeah. fake money is down? Huh. The fake Very money strange. not doing great. You know, uh, we should say, in fairness, the real money not doing great either. But the <laughs> fake true. money, the fake, fake money, money is doing way, way worse. Uh, John Nash, our guy over here on Twitter, he notes that the the Saturday night bonuses, if let, let's say you waited till Monday to take our advice and convert them to cash, they've already lost 20% of their value. So the we're looking at for these that, you know, you get the first place one, which here I believe went to Valentina Shevchenko. That's like a $30,000 of crypto bonus. And yet if she waited till today to just thinking like, Oh, maybe, Hey, do I have to wait until the bank's open to turn it in? Okay. I'll just, I'll wait till Monday and we'll, we'll take a look at that. You're already down to like that being, you know, 24 grand, 25 grand, somewhere around that. So that's not great. I'm just saying, here's where you should have listened to your old pals, Ben and Chad. As soon as they tell you, as soon as they tell you, good news, you won the crypto bonus. Don't wait until they get the S out in bonus before you're reaching around me and like, who's got, who's got a smartphone? Who's got a goddamn laptop? Something immediately. Cause I'm just saying it's maybe the picture there is not as rosy as the UFC would like you to think. In fact, they're probably not getting paid in crypto for their end of the deal. I'm just saying. <laughs> they're getting paid in money. Yeah. Just saying. Uh, ben, Dana White dialed in from the party bus. 
dialed in from the party bus, brother. Right after the conclusion of UFC 275, he wanted to hit us up the blue lit party bus with his face Mm -hmm. completely filling the screen, just marveling at the finish, as the rest of us were, frankly, to the Yuri Prohaska Glover Tashira fight. I guess on one hand, it's kind of endearing to see Dana White still get excited, still get like so excited about the finish of this big fight that he couldn't be bothered to show up to because he was riding around in the party bus. Uh, by the second token, I guess he wasn't there because he was down in Miami celebrating his son's 21st birthday. And part of that, we can only assume, included driving around in uh, in the Blue Man Group's party bus. Just everyone looking as blue as all get out. I guess this week I'm just saying, just imagine. Just imagine what Dana White gets up to on his son's 21st birthday. Just what kind of partying is going on at that thing? What, what kind of gift is given? And if you're, if you're Dana White's kid, are you like, oh, my 21st birthday, this is awesome. My dad is a multi-hundred millionaire. He's going to pull out all the stops. We're going to have a party bus. It's going to be amazing. Or like every other child in the world, are you like, this is so embarrassing? <laughs> you're like, hey, could I just come by on like the Sunday afternoon after my birthday and... Uh, We'll have lunch. Maybe mom can bake a cake, and then I get back to hanging out with my friends. Yeah, is we'll that what you out. mean? We'll do lunch at the at the uh, the Olive Garden. I mean, are we sure this was just a run of the mill party bus? Because this is, you know, Dana White loves to do rich guy shit, especially when his kids have birthdays. We've seen that before. Like, were you sure was this like a party submarine or something? I mean, this is, I assume, the the most luxurious party bus available. Also, Dana White seems like the kind of guy where he's not going to rent a party bus. He's He's going to purchase a party bus. <laughs> he probably already owns a fleet of party buses stashed all over the country for his own personal needs. You never know. You'd rather have it and not need it than need it and not have it, you know? If I had a nickel for every time, I was like, shit, is it too late to get a party bus? You know what? And then then what are you going to do? You're going to go eat some appetizers at Chili's like a fucking loser. I'm just saying, to be a fly on the wall... At the at Dana White's son's twenty first birthday, just saying, just saying. That is going to wrap it up this week uh, for the co main event podcast. Be sure to check us out all week over on Patreon. We have got the Wednesday live chat coming up, uh, middle of the week. Uh, I think we're going to have a doing the damn thing this week where we talk to ESPN reporter Kevin Van Valkenburg, friend of the show, about going over to London to cover the introductory press conference of the new. I'm going to say LIV golf tournament, golf tour, the sponsored by the Saudis. That was, should some of the things I think we'll talk to Kevin about should sound awfully familiar to uh, MMA fans. So that'll be a good show we're looking forward to. And then I think Friday for the Power Hour, perhaps a deep dive into the career of the recently uh, departed. Not that she died, but she left from the sport, Joanna Jacek. So we got all that stuff coming up. Uh, check us out over there, patreon.com slash co-main event. As for right now, though, we are done, we are through, we are out. So now I'm just imagining some of the conversations in the party bus. 1 a.m. driving around Miami. Somebody in Dana White's ear shouting over the music. Being like, Honestly, I think a lot of Scorsese's early work had a more daring quality to it. You're Dana White's kid. Again, when Dana White gets on, he's like filming his own Instagram video about the finish of Yuri for Hot Work with you. Work, work, work.
in front of my friends. And the black light on the party bus shows the mustard stain on your 